Welcome to DAC Beechcroft's Lawcast. I'm David Hill, I'm a public law partner, and in this episode I'm talking to Dr. Tim Wilson, and I'll allow Tim to introduce himself. Hello there. So I'm Tim Wilson. I'm a GP by background, uh, but I've been fortunate enough to have a very varied career working in health policy, both in England, the UK, uh, and, and across the world. Uh, I've particularly specialised on quality and safety. And in the last few years, I have focused most of my work on value-based healthcare, working with Professor Samir Gray. I'm now delighted to be working with uh, Arden and Jem commissioning support unit Uh, and the reason I'm particularly pleased to be working with them is they have now decided that the triple aim which we'll be talking about today David uh, is going to be the main focus of their work they're really excited about the prospect of the triple aim and supporting clients to um, actually deliver on the triple aim because they think it's got tremendous potential so that's why um, I'm delighted to be working with them and why this uh, podcast today is so pertinent. Thanks, Tim. Yes, uh, I've been working over the last number of years with NHS England on aspects of the health and care bill as it is now. And certainly the aspect that uh, interests me most is the triple aim uh, as well. The, the bill has a strong focus on the development of new structures for the NHS, and people are, of course, very interested in that. Um, but I think including the triple aim as a legal duty uh, does represent an attempt to further shift the culture of the NHS. Uh, we're going to look at where the triple aim has come from, uh, what it means in the context of the NHS, and how we expect organisations will be required to apply it under this new legal duty. Uh, But for starters, Tim, would you like to give a bit of background as to where the triple aim originated um, and how it's been uh, adopted by the NHS to date? Sure. Uh, there's a little bit of dispute actually where it started. Um, it most famously was developed by the Institute of Healthcare Improvement in Boston uh, in the US. Uh, but I happen to know Professor Sir John Oldham uh, on the board of CQC, very famous GP, uh, claims to have originally come up with the idea. Anyway, the the triple aim, uh, as promulgated by IHI in Boston, uh, has got uh, some traction worldwide. Um, Certainly in my work in the Middle East, quite a number of organizations were using it as one of their um, uh, design goals. Um, But uh, if I'm honest, uh, Muir Gray and myself always had a little trouble with some of the wording of the triple aim as as originally uh, put forward. Um, But now, as you've described, David, it was in the white paper um, with the wording changed to be much more appropriate for the NHS and indeed in the Health and Social Care Bill. And I think you'll take us through that in a second. But um, it has been adopted by a number of organisations in the NHS, chiefly because of their interest in the work in IHI. And I think people have seen it as being a very attractive um, uh, framework in which to deliver care. Although I'm not really aware that people have completely changed their entire strategy or orientated the way they work towards the triple aim which I very much hope they will. But David, why don't you describe specifically what the bill actually says about the triple aim? Sure. Well, uh, among a a 250-page bill as it currently is, the the new provision accounts for only about 
uh, 20 lines. Um, but uh, And also, it, the bill doesn't actually use the phrase triple aim just to make things more complicated, but instead it introduces a statutory duty for a range of NHS bodies to have regard to all likely effects of their decisions on three different things. First aspect is the health and well-being of the people of England, uh, which I think for each individual organisation will include a particular focus on the population they serve. The second aspect is the effect of their decisions on the quality of services that they either arrange or provide themselves. And thirdly, the likely effects of their decisions on the efficiency and sustainability of use of resources within the NHS. Now, what's interesting about this is the duty is actually applied uh, to four different types of organisations individually. It applies to NHS England. It applies to the new integrated care boards, which are due to be established, NHS trusts and foundation trusts. So each of these types of organisations must take into account this duty uh, when making decisions about their functions. So... Tim, how do you see the triple aim as it's expressed there impacting on the way in which integrated care boards and providers in particular will carry out their roles? Can we expect uh, or will we hope for a different approach than we have now? Well, I very much hope so. And uh, in previous conversations you and I have had, David, uh, we've talked about how um, certainly in the white paper anyway, uh, they, they explicitly talk about the triple aim being something that's going to change the culture of the NHS. And if something's going to change the culture of the NHS, you, th- you have to believe it's going to change really all aspects of day-to-day operations. Um, I, I think the why the triple aim is so important, or perhaps we should call it the three aims of the NHS. I mean, as you say, it's, it's not referred to the triple aim, and sometimes people get it a little bit confused between these three aims as outlined in the bill and you, as you just described uh, and, and the original um, triple aim that came from IHI. So let's talk, perhaps talk about the three aims. The thing about the three aims is they really are um, going to get the NHS, the, the, the four bodies that you've just talked about, to focus on a number of issues. Um, whereas we've made huge strides in quality and safety, uh, certainly since um, 1997 and so on, if we think of the big uh, reforms that Liam Donaldson, when he was chief medical officer, brought in um, alongside Alan Milburn and others, uh, these have continued with the advent of CQC and, and various other amazing initiatives. GERF would be another one. Um, so in many ways, you could say quality and safety, um, while it's a continuing battle, is something that we're clear about and we know what to do and so forth. But we've never quite got to grips uh, with issues around equity. And there is, unfortunately, lots of evidence to show that uh, NHS services are provided inequitably, or as Julian Tudor put it, the inverse care law applies. Uh, There are problems around value. So for any particular service, we might want to talk about mental health or anything like that. There are huge variations in the amount that it's spent. I think for mental health, it might be three and a half fold variation. And yet that has no relationship 
to the um, health and well-being of people with mental health problems. So if particularly we focus on the first aim, the health and well-being of the people, and the efficiency of the third aim, the efficiency and sustainability of, of the use of resources, uh, we can start to see there's uh, huge gaps, and it's something that the NHS hasn't really got to grips with. And that's what I think the, uh, the three aims in the health and care bill will start to get people to think about and look at and start to change what they do day by day. Thanks, Tim. Yes, hearing you speak just there, you know, there are proposals that actually the three aims, a fourth aim should be added to this. Um, this has come up during the bill's passage through Parliament uh, to specifically address issues of uh, equality. But uh, from what you've said there just now, I think that the three aims that are there at the minute can perhaps only properly be understood um, with a backdrop of trying to address issues of inequity. So it's it, it's already in the if you like at the moment. The other thing which strikes me is that this duty, in order to apply this duty, uh, you have to have facts at your fingertips in order to properly apply it. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it seems quite clear you need to understand the needs of the local population you serve and you need to have some sense of the efficiency and sustainability of your services by comparison with others uh, to know whether you are, in fact, uh, heading in the right direction in terms of the three aims. Tim, what's your take on uh, the, the kind of information and insights that NHS bodies should be gathering uh, to better equip them to meet this duty? Um, well, uh, simply put, they need not only to know about the quality of the service they're providing, and as, as, as I've been discussing, I think that's something that um, organisations have got to grips with. So if we let's take non-executive directors um, as an example. Broadly, most of them would be really comfortable uh, and know that they should understand or have some idea about uh, the degree to which their organisation is providing um, high quality and safe uh, healthcare. However, um, if we again focus on that first and third uh, aim, so uh, um, health and well-being and the efficiency and sustainability of use of resources, I don't think they've got a very clear idea. So this is uh, um, this is something that's needed to understand. So let's just take that mental health uh, example I was starting with earlier. So if you're, um, you know, let's say the non-executive directors on a um, uh, on the board of a mental health trust, you'd want to know, first of all, um, you know, to what degree are you improving the health and well-being of uh, people with mental health disorders in your area? What are you doing? Are the people you should be seeing that are not being seen, for instance, that's an equity issue. But when you do provide services, are they actually uh, making improving the health and well-being? Are you providing the services that provide the greatest gain to that population? And sometimes you need to consider, particularly when you're thinking about the health and well gains in health and well-being and efficiency, you have to consider: is it better to provide a simpler less expensive or less resource-intensive service to a lot of people providing a smaller gain than um, uh, a service to a few people providing a bigger gain. 
And these are the decisions that people will have to make, as the as the Act makes clear. Uh, these things have to be taken into consideration. So if I was living in a particular area, I'd want the Mental Health Trust to be thinking about these things. I'd want them to be regularly measuring the gains in health and well-being. I'd want them to be looking at the range of services they provide in terms of how that's providing health and well-being. I'd want them to compare that to other areas. As you say, benchmarking gets terribly important. And I'd want to know whether they're using resources in providing those services, which seems either comparable or better than uh, somewhere else. None of this is particularly new. I mean, um, people often uh, roll their eyes or feel this sounds very difficult when we start to describe this. But this kind of approach has been around for quite a long time. In some ways, we're just recycling old old ideas when in discussing this. So um, uh, around 10 years ago, there was a spend and outcomes tool that was regularly used within the NHS. And this would, for instance, look at the amount that was being spent on coronary artery disease in a particular area and the mortality in people under 75 from coronary artery disease. So you've got an outcome, that's the health and well-being component, and you've got the use of resources. And what was clear was some areas were getting outstanding results um, uh, with relatively low resource spend. And that's even after adjusting for factors like deprivation, ethnicity, and so forth. So you'd see some of the most deprived uh, areas, most challenged areas, getting outstanding results in terms of mortality from um, heart disease and yet using few resources. On the converse, what you'd often find is very wealthy areas of the country were spending a lot of money on resources, but not getting such good outcomes. Now, these are the kind of things that we need to start looking at. As I say, that, that, what I'm quoting there is data that used to regularly be used and uh, analysed, but has largely been forgotten. And I believe that um, non-executive directors need to understand that. That first thing is understanding how you are doing. Do you have any sort of other ideas or thoughts about how boards or organisations might be meeting the duty, David? Well, just to just to pick up on your point there about, in a sense, um, none of this is terribly new in terms of the essence of it. Looking at you know uh, the health of of communities, how to improve health and well being across a a community. Um, but I suppose what makes it different this time is actually establishing it as a legal duty, which applies across all aspects of an organization's decision-making, but of course, most importantly, at that strategic level and at the board level. I think that um, having these factors uh, placed solidly at the center of a board's agenda um, as a legal requirement is something quite new. Um, There are existing legal duties which operate in a similar way. Uh, So the NHS and the wider public sector are already subject to a number of duties phrased in quite similar terms uh, to the new three aims duty. Uh, The most commonly known one, I suppose, would be the public sector equality duty. And this is a statutory duty for public sector decision makers to take into account a number of equality objectives when making decisions on behalf of their organisation. That duty is framed in terms of having regard to the equality objectives and the new 3AM 
duty that we're talking about today similarly requires decision makers to have regard to what uh, is required by the triple aim. Well, what does that mean in practice? If we look at the public sector equality duty and uh, use it as an example of how these duties are considered, the courts have said that decision makers have to be clear what the duty requires. So we might expect, for example, boards and senior leaders uh, to receive training on the requirements of the duty. Um, They need to have information relevant to assessing the duty available to them. So they will need to engage with the population. They will need to engage with clinicians, uh, with those who have insights into what health needs are and how they can best be met. Uh, And they need to evidence how they have weighed the three aims as factors in the balance when they are making decisions. They should also uh, ensure that their consideration of the three aims is written up as part of their decision making so that if anybody comes along and says, well, did you actually take these matters into account? They can actually evidence that. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's something which will require we're not just talking about board level, but across the decision-making spectrum within NHS bodies, that this is hardwired into the approach to decision-making. Now, we've seen supportive tools from NHS England uh, in relation to the public sector equality duty, actually, uh, the equality delivery system, which has been a very effective means of hardwiring consideration of equality objectives into the decision making by NHS bodies. And, you know, we, the, the bill makes provision for NHS England to issue guidance about this new duty. And I expect we, could, we will see such guidance and perhaps supportive means made available to NHS bodies to help them uh, apply this duty. I mean, that's very positive, David. I, I think back to. Um, a conversation I had with you when we first met and you you made me think quite deeply that perhaps one of the errors in that we could make is is going down um, too much of a legalistic route and I you know this was great coming from a lawyer you were saying look you know as soon as you go down the legal route then people often get turned off so there are some very important things that people do and so on I think you described them very well there um, and I guess what I'd like to emphasize, you know, go back to this, the comment in the white paper about the three aims are there to change the culture. And the work we've done, again, this is with uh, Arden James CSU, um, has what's really excited me has been the way that clinicians from multiple different organizations coming together with patients, with managers, with finance people, you know, a broad range of people coming into a room and engaging with each other around the three aims, you know, um, agreeing, first of all, yep, the, 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 the reason they're in the NHS, and a lot of this is about, you know, the reason that people originally joined the NHS. The reason they're in the NHS is to make, is to improve health and well-being. Yes, they want to provide high quality services and they want to do that equitably because that's a really important factor of the NHS. And yes, they, they realise that they could use resources um uh, more efficiently and more sustainably. They get really very excited. They will also engage, by the way, in difficult 
arguments. I mean, um, this this is not always straightforward. And in many ways, this is why I think sometimes I think contracting, which tends to be quite black and white, hasn't always succeeded. I mean, it's highly necessary for some things, but um, for some of these more nuanced areas, actually you want, uh, you want to sort of frame discussions. And you and I talked earlier uh, um, today about... Daniels and Sabin work, work their work about reasonableness. You know, making decisions based on good reasons. So the the three aims give us reasons, and what we need is an environment in which people can have these discussions to make these decisions. And as I said, the exciting thing is that when you get people in a room, you frame the conversation around the three aims. Um, and you give them the data and you start to challenge them, people really engage, really enjoy it, and it sort of reconnects them with the original purpose and why they originally joined the NHS. Um, and so I think there's a really positive side to this. We, we can do tremendous good through um, uh, the, if we deliver the three aims and if we engage with them the right way. Um, uh, and, and, and that certainly is the thing that I want to see. What, what do you feel about that, David? Yes, I agree. You know, that what fundamental the NHS is seeking here is to, well, you could say culture change. I think we're already on a journey towards the desired culture of, you know, everybody owning problems and, and trying to generate solutions, but just embedding that. Now, of course, with legislation, you cannot legislate for culture. You cannot create a culture by legal diktat. So law, even as a lawyer, I see that law has its limits. Um, but, you know, certainly you can create an environment which is conducive to moving the culture in the right direction. And I think this new duty uh, plays an essential role in doing that. Uh, I'd also say, you know, we do need to be careful that this doesn't become a, a tick box approach, that actually people are grappling with the issues that underline the triple aim and properly considering how they can do best by their populations with the resource available. Well, thanks, Tim, for um, joining uh, me today. As always, uh, a very interesting discussion. And uh, we hope that if you're listening to this, uh, you find it helpful too. Goodbye. <laughs>